it's funny actually because when you live in Nigeria, you want to escape Nigeria, but mm. it's too shocking to finally escape the Nigeria and now find out that nobody has heard of Nigeria. Welcome to Third Culture Africans, the lifestyle podcast for dreamers, thinkers, and doers. We celebrate artistry, share stories from those brave enough to create something and succeed, listen to diverse perspectives on African success, and those shifting the needle on culture. I'm Zezo Ariaki Sal, your host. On this week's episode of Third Culture Africans, my guest is Chibundu Onuzo, who started writing at 10 and wrote the award-winning book, Welcome to Lagos. She is an outspoken character who's not afraid to use her voice and her words to express herself and also for causes that she believes in. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did sitting with Chibundu to discuss her career as an author. Well, thank you, Chibundu, for joining us on this week's episode of Third Culture Africans. Thank you for having me. You are, I would say, my first professional author on the show. And I've always found authors interesting um, because being able to create magical words or storytell in a way that allows people to be transported into I wouldn't say an alternative reality is incredible. Or even just being able to craft out characters that people are able to somehow find themselves in. And with the use of words, it's beautiful. So I'm excited for this episode. I think your story is important. I think your story is also beautiful. And I think at a time like this, it gives hopefully a lot of hope to anyone who isn't sure of where they should be. And you speak beautifully and inspirationally, so I'm excited to to dig deep. I've got here, you're an author, also a doctor because you hold a PhD, Uh but you're an author of literary fiction, wrote your first book at 17. Well, started it. Started at 17? Yes. Published at? 21. Wow. And I've also got here, you are a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and 40 Under 40. Yes, correct. (laughs) Amazing. I guess to to dig deep or or just dive in to early days, how do you become an author who starts writing their first book at 17, publishes at 21, and is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature? So The Spider Kings also wasn't my first book. So it was my first book that was published. But I started writing my first novel when I was 10. And I was serious about it. So, I mean, I grew up in Nigeria, grew up in Lagos. And I suppose it's something we can discuss further along in the episode. But I don't know that I really see myself. I really enjoy your podcast. I listen to it. But I don't know if I see myself as a third culture African. I just am an African. Okay. But you're a third culture kid. You moved to the UK at 14. No, but I'm not. Yeah, but like, I feel like my roots are, my parents live in Nigeria, you know. So like, Mm -hmm. it wasn't, it didn't feel like I was completely transplanted. It didn't feel like we moved here and we sort of waved by Mm. by Nigeria. Because especially, you know, sort of when you go to boarding school here, we had a family home here. But, you know, often you would also spend holidays in Nigeria. And Mm. it was like school was school. And then home was still very much 
present. It wasn't like oh, I waved yeah. bye-bye to Nigeria. Which I, which I think is true for all my mm. guests, I think. I think the fact that you are multi-identity, though, because in the context of Nigeria, you know, there's a lot of being Nigerian that you're probably not in tune with and perhaps more in tune with being in the UK. Mm. I suppose maybe it's like like a grudging acceptance, <laughs> you know. Um, I mean, you know, I'm Nigerian, you know, because sometimes you have conversations with people and they'll ask you where are you where are you from originally from. So now loaded it, question so, that question. So it, so it depends on who is asking the question. So if the person who is asking the question is a certain degree of woke, they will now realize that oh, you're not supposed to ask that question, and they say oh, I'm I'm so sorry, or they they will now start feeling somehow for asking me. And then me, I'm, but I'm like, but I'm Nigerian, Sha. Like, you can hear it even in the way I speak that I'm not originally yeah. from England. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of, but I, I don't like it when, it just depends on the person that is asking. Yeah, but, but that's, that is Nigerian. the point. The fact that it depends on the person and the context of the question is what makes you a third culture kid. And you no. just happen to be African. I refuse. <laughs> you carry your third culture with yourself. <laughs> Me, I already have <laughs> more than enough cultures. My father is Igbo, my mother is Yoruba, okay, and I was born and raised Fabulous. in Lagos, and I consider myself a Lagosian. So that means my three cultures are already full before I have left. So this podcast is sponsored by Malay Natural Science. Malay's products are inspired by the rich landscapes, alluring scents, and ancient wisdom of Africa. Their luxurious fragrance and body care range balances 100% natural active ingredients and scientifically proven formulas to heal, protect, and pamper your skin. Malay ships worldwide, and you can buy their products at maleeonline.com. They also offer a free sample if you'd like to try. So what happens to Chibundu from 14 till now? What happens to her? Um, Yeah, who's lived in the UK. You know, she stayed here for 10 years. Formative years in those 10 years. Yes, formative years. Yes. Her Majesty's government give her residency, thank God. And then Her Majesty's government give her a British passport. So I'm sort of now beginning <laughs> Begrudgingly to accepting that. it. <laughs> no, I didn't begrudgingly accept, accept it. So do you know what it is to travel without a visa? Hey, goodness gracious. <laughs> <laughs> that is a testimony for another day. I do not... I said thank you very much. And, you know, sort of like, I'm sort of beginning to come to terms with kind of accepting that I'm also Black British, I suppose, whatever, and then sort of figuring yeah. that out. So maybe, maybe, but I, and the thing I is, think I mean, the, the discussion what? around identity, though, is important because I had a, someone on our Instagram ask a question. And perhaps maybe this is a question that you are asking and also we are navigating, right? And it was, hey, I don't think I'm a third culture African in the same way that you've mentioned it. But what makes or what is a third culture African? And the name wasn't meant to be political in any way when I came up with it. But it was very much that multi-identityed Africans who have had exposure to other parts of the world, even other African countries, seems to be creating within them a sense or ability to create in such a way that they are shifting the needle on our culture, also exposing the possibilities in 
I guess, other careers and being able to do it in such a way that it's purposeful and also giving back, if that makes sense. And I just drew a correlation between, hey, here's a list of people that would be considered successful in what they're doing outside of your traditional, I'm a banker, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, but who have really gone out and carved something new that has gotten the world to look at Africa and also look at Africa through a different lens to what we're used to seeing in mainstream culture, whether that's poverty or economic instability or fluctuations, et cetera, et cetera. And for the first time, these people are creating businesses or careers or sharing their gifts in a way that people then get to look at it through our eyes or eyes of someone who has a fondness, a love, a passion, a connection for the part of the continent that they come from. And it was just the concept of a third culture kid and realizing that these are all third culture kids who happen to be African. And and the name was in no way supposed to be political. Um, But it's interesting that it, it does pull up a larger question around identity. And it doesn't single out anyone. We have multi-identityed Africans, right? You've just pointed out by virtue of having your parents be from two different tribes, you are already a third culture kid. Your dad is Igbo, your mom's Ryoba, and you grew up in Lagos. That makes you a third culture kid. I guess for me, where I halt with the word is the same sort of issue that I have with the word Afropolitan because of the way that it intersects with class, you know. So I'm not saying that obviously me traveling outside of Nigeria hasn't influenced me of course in all our experiences they influence us but am I saying that if I had remained in Nigeria I wouldn't have had something to say I wouldn't have also had the innovation or come up with the ideas to also shape culture or to affect culture or just to be innovative like I don't want to tie my innovation to the fact that you know I came to the west because as you said there are multiple cultural experiences that you can have within Nigeria, within Mm -hmm. Lagos for that matter. Or even within Africa alone, that makes you a third culture kid. Mm. So it was a lady, I had Elvira ask, I love your purpose. I'm wondering what do you mean by third culture Africans? How do they differentiate from normal ones? (laughs) In the same way that you're saying (laughs) it, right? (laughs) And I guess to answer your question, Elvira, hopefully this part of Chibundu's and I's discussion around identity and what that means has given some insight into the thought process but in no way is it meant to be exclusionary because I think even within Africa itself if you've never crossed the borders or left there is a large percentage of the population that by default are third culture kids you have parents from two different tribes or your parents are from a different tribe but you grew up in a different city I think there's enough movement within Africa or even within our countries within cities or states that it is quite a common thing. And usually when you have a reference point of a difference, I think it does create an environment for you to question and want to add value though, because then you're less complacent. Mm. You wrote Welcome to Lagos being in the UK. Yes, I wrote it in England. I wrote some of it in England, but I also wrote some of it in Nigeria, in Lagos. In the Lagos of the title. But okay, I'm not trying to... Um, it's just an interesting discussion. 
I like no, that. but I, I'm loving it. I'm loving mm-hmm. it because it's something that, as I said, Elvira's asked, is something we get asked on social media. And I love the fact that with you, we've been able to discuss that in a little bit more detail. I guess we all struggle with what parts of identities, because in certain rooms, as you say, depending on who asks and what the context is and how woke they are in inverted commas, it that dictates your answer. The fact that it's not one consistent answer in itself lends itself to the idea of what I'm saying. But to go back to your writing, you are a successful literary fiction author and your first book put you on the map, if I'm right in saying that. Well, it depends whose map you are using, but on some people's map, (laughs) yes. Well, you had a publisher, so you weren't self-publishing. And that in today's world is a huge achievement given that there's enough self-publishing platforms and avenues for any budding writer to go down. Was it a conscious choice for you to, I don't want to say formalize your writing by going down the publishing route, but why the choice to publish as opposed to go down the publishing route as opposed to self-publish? I mean, I got my contract when I was 19, sort of 10 years ago. And Mm -hmm. I think e-readers existed then, but really sort of self-publishing wasn't something that I thought of because most of the books that at the time anyway you see in Waterstone, W.H. Smith, they're not self-published. They've gone the traditional publishing route. So just figuring out or reading about how books got from laptops to stores, most of the Mm. accounts that I read of that process said first you get an agent, then you get an editor, hopefully, and then your publisher Mm. distributes your book. And so there was a book called The Writers and Artists Yearbook, which is published every year, Mm. which my sister bought for me when I was around maybe 13 or 14 or something. I think she bought it for me when I came to England because she knew that I was a writer and I had a lot of family encouragement. And Helen Oyeyemi was was used as my... um, just that somebody I should aspire to. So Helena and me, I think, signed her contract when she was 17 or 18. And so my sister in that sort of Nigerian motivational style was like, look at Helena and me. Does she have two heads? She's a writer and she's a teenager and she got a book deal. So you can get a book deal. So here is this book called The Right Artist Yearbook that is going to show you how to get the things that you write and we say are so good, how to get yeah. them from your laptop or from your notebook and how to get them into a bookstore. So, she, you know, she bought me this book. Mm. And I went through and circled all the agents that I thought sounded interesting. So how the book worked was it mm. would show you, it would write down the authors that the agents represented. And so any author's mm. name that I recognized, I would circle that agency as one that was of interest and so i actually Mm. sent my first query letter to an agent again when i was 14 or 15 i can't remember i can't remember how old i was but i was still a teenager and i was still i hadn't reached my a level so it was one of my years of gcse and i got my first rejection slip and it was terrible and i was like oh my gosh they rejected me and i was like i'm going to keep it forever and show it when I finally get published. Of course, I didn't keep it for longer than, I don't know, two weeks. I don't know where <laughs> that seminar rejection... <laughs> I don't know where that seminar rejection slip is now. But yes, yeah, so, I mean, I started the process when I was quite young. And I always encourage people, and especially parents, like, you know, let your children start pursuing what they want to do as young as possible, especially if it's something creative, because 
you can take those losses more easily when you're 18. I think so. You forget them. You forget them. Yeah, you forget yeah, yeah. them a lot quicker. You know. But but then how do you go from that and then continue with formal education, right? You get your degree in history and then a master's in public policy in between writing these two books with a publisher and agent and a career and an income. I don't know. I mean, I just did. Like, so, I mean, so I signed my contract when I was 19. So I was in my first year of university. And my novel came mm-hmm. out when I was 21. So I was in my final year. And there wasn't mm-hmm. a sort of sort of dropping out of school when I signed my contract. A, because I wouldn't have been able to remain in the UK if I'd done that. I was here on a student visa. But also because B, mm-hmm. like, it's not as if they paid me £5 million in advance. Like, it was a nice sum of money. But then it's given to you in installments. And, you know, by the time it's broken up into installments over X amount of years, you know, it's, it's below minimum wage. <laughs> it wasn't like, okay, now I'm going to buy my island in the Caribbean or something. So I knew that I definitely wanted to eventually end up making my living from writing and to write full time. But it wasn't like at yes. 19, it was like, okay, mom and dad, I'm going to buy you a house in Ikoi, you know, and everybody mm. can retire in family. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I still went to school. I remember my first year, I got a low 2-1. Um, and then I was mm. like, no, I came to university to get it first. And I did, I got it first at the end of university. It was well, just then. sort of what I, thank you, what I wanted to do so i just i did it i wanted to publish a novel i didn't tell a lot of my friends i remember sort of like keeping it a bit to myself and i then remember one of my friends saying then she'd seen some press i didn't know i was on C- i was on cnn i was somewhere with bbc i was on something and so she'd seen some press about my novel and she's like what do you mean you've written a novel and i was like i yeah i've written a novel yeah that's what nigerians do <laughs> Yes, that's what we do. <laughs> we write novels and then we carry the first class because we have two heads. And also because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Amen. But the reality is that's enormous pressure, right? It requires a level of focus. It requires a level of dedication to execute. How did you go about finding your path, though, through navigating what is adolescence, becoming a young adult, achieving a degree, writing a book, all of these things are living within a very short space of time for you. Okay, so let's rewind. So I grew up in Lagos. I was born in Nigeria Mm -hmm. in 1991. I had a really, really happy childhood. So both my parents are doctors. Um, Went to Corona Bagada, the center of excellence. Every other corona <laughs> is a waste and a disgrace. Okay. <laughs> the only corona you want to go to is Corona Bagada. I said it. All the rest of them, they are fake. So I really enjoyed my time there, you know, Mr. Anan. There's a lot of music. So I'm very musical. I'm, I play I, I I play the piano. And so like we were encouraged to pursue our interests. So nothing was ever by force, except school, like you had to pass. But like, you know, we had piano lessons and swimming lessons and tennis lessons. And there was no lesson my mother saw that she didn't want to say, why don't you try this? I remember we, I signed up for some like ballet, like some very fake ballet that no ballerinas in Europe <laughs> would ever recognize as ballet. But we also went and signed up for that, um, for that ballet. So like, 
sometimes when people see some of the a lot of the interests that I have continued to pursue into adulthood, it seems like I do a lot because I play the piano, I sing. But I'm like, trust me, I tried my hand at a lot of other things before I narrowed it. Growing up, you did a lot, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I think the same. I think, oh goodness, we did a whole bunch of things. So I think for me, the experience for a large part, if you were from a middle class background that allowed you the opportunities to develop new skills and learn more by and large I think most of our parents gave you as many opportunities as you could from brownies girl scouts you did it all you had a packed calendar and you were actually so busy I remember now you know I'm now a mother and my first instinct my daughter started going to play groups at like three months and then, then one day I woke up and I asked myself, but why am I stressing myself trying to get out the house to make these classes like they're prescribed, right? They're, they're mandatory. Oh. And I think I realized that it, it had a lot to do with my own upbringing and the fact that oh. actually extracurricular activities was a part of life. My dad played tennis. He had hobbies. Oh. My mom was very creative. So in order to do those things consistently, even in my own life, wasn't foreign and to be able to pass that on. So just to echo your sentiment around fake ballet, piano, like one joke. So yeah, so there was that. And so there were always a lot of books in the house. And so I read Mm. a lot from a very young age. So my mom usually bought the books and it was the books that she had read in her childhood. And so because she had a colonial education, it was a lot of Austin, Dickens, David Copperfield, Anne of Green Gables, Enid Blyton, Mallory Towers, all that sort of stuff. That's the only sort of deficit I would say. And I mean, you know, my parents did their best. I went to my village every year. I certainly knew I was Nigerian. But, you know, something happens when you grow up in that sort of very middle-class Nigerian or professional family sort of thing where you start imbibing that western things are the interesting things are the sweet things so you know a lot of the television that we watched was american and there was just always this idea of always wanting to go abroad and like i remember like even when we went we came to england for holidays or we came to america for holidays when it was time to go back home and they started doing all the back to school adverts for sort of the british (laughs) children or the american children I'd be telling my mom, I don't want to go back to Nigeria. No, I want to stay and be eating, I don't know, Doritos and walk at McDonald's or whatever. Not Marie Biscuits or Cabin Biscuits. Exactly. So yeah, there was that very creative environment, but also in some ways looking, especially when it came to creativity, looking to seeing Western products as what was sort of like the standard. So my first novel that I started when I was 10, and I started it sort of very seriously, went to the family computer, opened my Microsoft Word document. And I mean, I'm the youngest in my family, and we had a lot of cousins living with us. But, you know, sort of when Chibundu was writing her novel, nobody could ask me to get up from the computer because this was a very legitimate, serious pursuit. But this first novel that I began was set in America with white American children and I don't know what they were getting up to, Brad and Chuck or whoever. And I remember my mom reading it and sort of, I guess she must have been a bit alarmed because they hadn't done anything, because we lived in Nigeria. I guess they didn't feel they had to tell us that black is beautiful and black is good. And so to see 
her 10 year old daughter writing this novel completely populated by white people um and i remember her telling me you know why don't you consider writing about what you know and i was aghast i should write about what i know i should write about madame coin coin uh, write about that's not for books you know write about write about bagada like yeah. that's not interesting interesting is brad mm. and chuck in i don't know pennsylvania yeah. or wherever the perspective right set. <laughs> And so there was so I always I was always writing from primary school, went to secondary school in Atlantic Hall. And I would say Atlantic Hall was great for many things. I was a boarder. Atlantic Hall was great for many things, but it was not great for my creative life. You know how it is, like I was you're sort of 13, 12, 13, 14, and then everybody's like who is hard and who is rad and who is cool and who's not cool and you know who who got a Valentine's gift. So I think my first year as a day student in Atlantic Hall. Creatively, I was still sort of on track, but then mm. my DS2 and DS3, when I became a footballer, like creatively, I was drilled into sort of being a teenager and caring about how fresh you are mm. and who is not fresh. And I think perhaps if I'd stayed in Atlantic until I finished, maybe I'd have been published later because I would have been caught up in all the hard and rad. And, you know, we were so superficial and so materialistic, you know. I mean, I had a show at the mm. South Bank called 1991 which was autobiographical and i wrote about some of my mm. atlantical experiences which included like you know always you know who travels for summer you know where did you travel you know like you know god forbid you went to ghana ghana is not a holiday destination <laughs> but, like don't go to your village rather than go to ghana and or like where your trainers from and are your trainers nike mm. and you know all those sort of rubbish you know and checking to see who stuff was fake or whose stuff was abamid and there's nothing wrong with abamid like abba is actually a place where they actually manufacture things in nigeria but again it was a colonial mentality like that had passed down and passed down even though i didn't have any direct experience of colonialism just it seeped down this idea of western as better so anyways when i reached the age of 14 finally i got my wish you know my sister was graduating from atlantic hall and my mother decided they had us in pairs but four i have two siblings who are much older than me and then it's me and my sister mm-hmm. so it's like an 11 year gap between me and the oldest so my oldest brother and sister went to england around the same time and so me and my sister my sister finished ss3 i was in gs3 so it was just like okay she'll go to england to start a levels and i'll go to england to start gcses we went to a school in winchester at the same boarding school that my mother went to so that's sort of a connection to the place and we arrived mm. there and you were like you know the only black people that like maybe one other black person apart from us it's funny actually because when you live in nigeria you want to escape nigeria but mm. it's too shocking to finally escape the nigeria and now find out that nobody has heard of nigeria because you think ah, ah, you, you might this is in south america you know they were they were surprised by uh english and that uh, we spoke english and i was like okay you, you spoke well yeah what Your do you guys speak and like yeah i said your own english is very good too you know congrats you know since yeah. we are complimenting <laughs> each other on our english speaking abilities i said i was speaking english before you were born first aid in english <laughs> a speech in time saves nine nonsense <laughs> and ingredients <laughs> You know, so we sort of arrived there. And so the interesting thing was, so again, I've been writing all this time. It was only when I moved to England that I started setting my fiction in Nigeria. Because 
you know, like, and the things they would ask, they had a very fixed perception of what Africa should be. So, sort of ironically, shortly after we arrived, we had something called Africa Week in my boarding school where they were raising funds for, you know, Africans. I don't, I, I don't like to put a tone when I say this because, you know, I mean, it was very worthy and laudable work. Yeah, they raised funds for, for causes that needed them. But, you know, you can raise funds for something and, and not feel so superior in your fundraising. And not sort of feel like you're, you're better than the cultures that you are interacting with. Anyways, you know, so they were doing, a lot of girls were doing presentations on African countries. And so because I was in, in I had arrived, some people decided to switch their presentations from like Kenya and Tanzania to Nigeria. As a sort of, I don't know, special favor to me or something. I don't know what they're thinking behind this was. As I remember one girl coming to interview me to find out what was sort of interesting about Nigeria for her presentation. And she had originally chosen Kenya as her country of interest. And so she had planned on her presentation being safari themed. And so she comes to me and says, um, okay, so um, I want to do my presentation based on like sort of like the animals, like the wildlife in Nigeria. I'm like, okay, okay, good, good. And she's like, okay, so um, you have elephants in Nigeria. So I now know that we actually do have elephants in Nigeria. There's a West African elef- elephant. But at this time, I did not, we do not have elephants in Lagos anyways, except we do even have a zoo in Lagos. You know, so I'm like, um, no, we don't have elephants. And so she's like, oh, do you have lions? There's a West African lion. Didn't know this at the time. No, we don't have lions. Do you have um, rhinoceroses? And so she just goes through this list of animals like she's planning the itinerary for Noah's Ark. And she keeps going through, do you have, I don't know, meerkats and warthogs? I don't know, the lion king. And so she gets to the end of her list. And I'm like, okay, maybe just monkeys is what we have. And she's like, you don't have all these animals. Say, what do you have? And at that age, obviously, I didn't know what to respond to such a question. You know, like, now Mm. I'm like, what kind of stupid question is that? What do you mean, what do we have? We have people. We have cities. We have Mm -hmm. (laughs) airports. We have yeah we have music there's so much that we have but because you can only perceive Mm. africa through this very narrow lens you know then we don't have anything because we don't have space for your safari or we don't have space for you to project your own sort of very restricted narrative and yes i had all these sort of interactions in boarding school that only as an adult you know i can fully sort of of process and I continue to come across and run up with this thinking even after sort of I became a published author. So I, I would say this for my school. I'm in Winchester, St. Swithin's. There's an excellent education. And I had access to a library for the first time, like a really, really good library. My parents had always bought books for me. But generally, like the library at St. Swithin's, I read things fall apart for the first time in St. Swithin's, read, um, you know, a lot of other African authors. And it was a very well-stocked library. And my teachers also encouraged me a lot. Sort of, they always said I was a great writer. And yeah, they, none of them were particularly surprised when, I guess, you know, maybe months after I'd left, maybe about six months after I'd left St. Swithin's, you know, I signed my contract with Favor and Favor. Um, so my teachers were excellent. But then there were all these sort of interactions sort of with girls. There were a couple of incidents of racism. I've gotten this out of my system. I, I did this show at the South Bank. So yeah, one or sort of two... The usage of the N-word around me, not directed at me, but sort of around me. And again, coming from Nigeria, you know, that word just did not have the same historical significance for me. It did not have the same weight. I knew it was a bad word that they shouldn't be using, but it wasn't as if it was a word that I felt I had any claim to. So there were all these sort of incidences. And 
I would say that my immediate feeling when I left the school was positive. Mm-hmm. And then I sort of, quote, out of course, became more woke. And then my feeling was very negative, very negative. And I thought this was completely unacceptable. How could this have happened? Why were they so ignorant? You know, it's sort of very negative. Yeah. And then sort of now I feel sort of, I can say, okay, there were really good things that happened. You know, there were bad things that happened too. And I'm sort of maybe more neutral, more, more neutral towards the experience, more neutral, varying again towards the positive. But does that then push you to direct your work towards how do I create conversation that reduces this level of ignorance? Ah, no. All the money that the government in the UK is investing in education in this country, it's not me that is going to be writing books to reduce ignorance. I am not the Minister of Education. And also, just as a writer, like that sort of didactic burden, I didn't, I didn't want to take it upon myself because, you know, I want my own creative freedom to express whatever is uppermost on my mind. And mm. yes, it's sort of like, you know, you just need to be better educated because, you know, I didn't watch, I don't know, some BBC Panorama expose on gangs of London and say that that is all that exists in England. You know, so you don't watch, I don't know, a documentary about a famine in an African country and then, I don't know, come and be leaving biscuits for me when you see me because you watch the documentary on, you know, like sort of use your education, you know. So, no, I don't, I definitely don't take that upon myself. Um, You know, if you want to be ignorant, be ignorant, but like the cost of your ignorance keep rising in an increasingly globalized world. But then that, that then takes you into young adulthood. And then you're thinking, I would love, to write a book, like a formal book that I will publish? I've been, I've been trying. I've been trying to write books from that age of 10. So I had many sort of writing directed at publishing from about 14. I always tell people who want to write that no, none of your past efforts are wasted. So if that mm. one didn't work out, it's all training. It's all practice for sort of the eventual project that will work out um, as long as you don't give up. And so, like, the Spider King's daughter, the main protagonist is from a wealthy family, Abike, and then the other main character is a street hawker. Mm. And I suppose I look at sort of inequalities in the city through their friendship and sort of through the relationship that they strike up. And these are things mm. that have always interested me or that I've always been aware of since I've been a child. Um, and I remember um, my mother entered me for an essay competition, of course, about and the topic of child labor. And when I was either in primary six or GS1, so quite young, I interviewed a street hawker about her experiences. She was a minor about being a hawker. Um, and it was only after I finished the book that I realized that the inspiration, the idea must have come from that interview in some way, shape or form. Like it's not sort of like a direct line that I finished the interview and said, right, I'm going to write a book about hawkers in Lagos. But But it stuck with you. And I think this is something that's clear growing up in Africa or still being tied to Africa as Africans, I think in the way that I conduct my business, and I think by and large for anyone who has the level of empathy to understand that, you know, you are where you are. It's a luxury, right? You could have been born to illiterate parents. One in a billion chance you were born to to your parents who had the opportunities they had to give you the opportunities you have. I guess the capitalist nature of 
Nigeria becomes something or most African countries or even the world then becomes stark and clearer as you get older. And then I guess the question is, what part do you play in that? And in your writing, you touch on, I guess, aspects of the Biafrian war or even just economic differences, class systems, looking at opportunities in a different way that perhaps takes the reader to a place from a very empathetic perspective that then focuses on the relationships more so that these characters are having. And I find that beautiful because in a way for the first time you are said to be redefining African literature and you earned the title of the youngest female writer with a publisher as a result of that. Um, so with my particular publisher, so with Faber and Faber, which I think they've been going for about maybe 90 years. They're pretty old anyway. They're pretty established. And so yes, when I was 19, when I signed my contract, I was the youngest woman to ever have signed with them. I don't know if somebody else has taken my crown. I haven't been following. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been following. But um, at the time, in, in, yeah. as I said, 10 years ago, yes. They say we're the sum of all of our experiences, right? And I think in your work, it clearly shows the aspects of society that you question. And you question these openly anyway. You know, you have always used your voice on the platforms that you are given. So whether that's BBC or TEDx or even your social media. And to have conversations around issues that I guess reach further than you know what you write about now you're obviously in the middle of writing book number three you're now a professional author (laughs) so this is now your full-time job you're no longer lecturing you're not studying (laughs) and all you do now is full-time writing you've also written for tv recently or for the big screen with Dolapo is fine yes I have actually yes short film did you forget that I did, I did. I was like, what are you talking about? Oh, I was like, oh, yes, okay, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Yeah, with Dolapo is fine. How was that experience, um, seeing your words on a screen? It was great, actually. It's, it's great to see it um, translated. And it's not exactly as it was in the text, but, I mean, I've listened to interviews of other sort of authors who've had their work transferred to screen. And, you know, something they always say is that you need to let go of the original thing you wrote and which because the original for me was a short story and see it as a sort of like creative translation into another medium because film is is different when you write do you visualize do you visualize your characters do they have faces hairstyles outfits do you go as far as that in your process or no no i don't they sort of have indistinct faces they have them a lot stronger personalities so sometimes like i would see someone and say oh that looks like Abike, or that could be Abike, and that's the main character in my first novel. But um, it's not as if I had a sort of sketch in my in my mind, or a sort of like a photographic image of the character. No, I don't. You touched on your siblings and your upbringing. You all are creative. You have a sister uh-huh. who's a musician. Yes. Your brother is a yes. writer, producer, and director in Nollywood. Yes, he also works in private equity. So that's his day job. So we all have well side, except for me, who's doing it full time now. So my sister, who's a singer, songwriter, musician, she's an engineer as well. So that's her day job. Yeah. High standards. High style. 
How have you dealt with the, the part of your work that means it belongs to the world and the responsibility thereof that has come out of Welcome to Lagos? No, you know, I, I guess, I mean, people say all these things, yeah. And I know sometimes, you know, people say, you know, you, you, some people feel some sort of great weight responsibility. But I'm like, my own responsibility, like just trying to like eat your five a day, drink enough water, sort of meet my own very personal and immediate targets. You know, I just, I just don't really have any extra energy to be worrying about oh somebody read my book and so then i mean maybe sometimes if in the immediate aftermath of reading perhaps you know somebody like you know i met someone somewhere people can be so rude i met someone and she was like you know i didn't like your book at all though that in fact you know oh, by wow. the time i'm telling you like by the time um i told everybody how i didn't like it i'm sure i even affected your sales or something like that and i was like hmm I was like, mm, okay, okay, but okay, that's your business. <laughs> um, but three years on, 20,000 mm-hmm. books sold in the UK. Surely there are people who are picking up Welcome to Lagos for the first time today. It's allowed you book tours. It's allowed you in the last three years to, to keep going, right? The, the book mm-hmm. in three years is still going. That in itself and the conversations you're having, right? You're having conversations with people like the BBC on colonialism and it didn't end with the book. You didn't just write the book, publish it, and then it ends. I think Mm -hmm. the book has created so many other conversations for you and the responsibility thereof, though. I don't know. You just don't see that and you're, you're completely like, this exists and I just need to focus on staying alive. Yeah, it's not just it's not just of staying alive. It's you know, you know, I like to eat badun, like you know, I, I enjoy my life. I have and just yeah. chopping life, belefou. I mean, so like again, responsibility. So I knew like I I wrote a piece about Barbados that was about a trip to Barbados I I had, and a lot of people mm-hmm. in the Caribbean who read it very strongly disagreed with sort of my perceptions of of, of what I'd seen. Uh, you know sort of came online to call me out for it and i suppose i guess that's what you would say is like the responsibility like being aware of the reach your words can have maybe but the truth is would i write it piece again i'll write it again though and if the people come for me again i would say yes that's your right you know even people there's there's a saying that like let one bed perch and let another bed perch and any bed that says neither of them should perch like that bed should die or something very drastic like that. But it's like, you mm. say your own. I say my yeah. own, gra-gra. You say your own, mm. gra-gra. And then that's it now. I mean, I suppose my responsibility is to try as much as possible to articulate my perspective and to try to really try and articulate what I, I think, which is why a lot of time I don't engage on Twitter. So it's funny, like, when a lot of people were coming at me on Twitter, like, so it was a serious barrage. People are busy me. This girl should stop writing. This is that, that. I just... um locked my page and then locked out mm. of my twitter for like three days because the truth is like when you have all that sort of once you turn off your phone it doesn't exist you know which is why i said like my mm. immediate concerns like drinking water eating my five a day is is more immediate to me than like somebody disagrees with an article that i wrote on about Barbados. i guess yes i'm aware of making sure that like what i've said is what i wanted to say and then how it's received you know, there's only so much that I can't do anything about how it's received. You know, you can greet somebody good morning and they'll say you are a stupid person. 
that's not my responsibility that in your village good morning is an insult how have you dealt with the questioning of your age and i i think in company with china cheve Shoenka, and these are the authors that you are now or you are placed amen within, i right? receive it yes keep going <laughs> i receive it yes how do you deal with I wouldn't say ageism, right? I think for a long time, especially in, in literary circles, I think the assumption has always been that with age, you know, comes a perspective in writing. But you've been able to dispel that. I mean, so like definitely, so my first book came out when I was 21, still an undergrad. Mm. And I did find, actually, I didn't find the writing of the novel difficult or even the editing. What I found difficult was the aftermath. You know, you start going on panels, doing press, television, radio. Mm. And often you, you wouldn't just, you'd go there to talk about your book. But if, before you know, mm. people would start asking you about the socio-economic, political, cultural conditions mm. in Nigeria and your projections for the Nigerian economy and all sorts, basically, you know, because you're a Nigerian mm. author that you suddenly become sort of seen as some, like, sort of experts on Nigeria. Mm. And I mean, at first, I did find, and it was often panels, I did find these quite intimidating because I felt like, you know, everybody else could talk and answer the question and, like, say so much and give so many ideas. And then, you know, somebody Mm. would ask me a question about, like, you know, what do I think about the plight of women in Nigeria and child marriage and FGM? And they'd Mm. ask me some, I don't know, some question. And I'd just be like, it's Mm. bad. And the interviewer, the interviewer will be looking at me like, oh, Benny, this is radio. You can't have silence for radio. You can't just open your mouth and say it's bad. I end. Yeah. Yes, I always remember I leave these interviews always feeling like I hadn't done my best or I hadn't sort of said my ideas to the best of my ability and all that sort of thing. But then, you know, again, it's a function of age. So, like, it's, it's great. Like, and I because I started young. I'm still young. I'm still under 30, man. Mm-hmm. I'm still a spring chicken. But you know, you start yeah, you do this thing for such you do this thing for long enough and it just sort of mm. becomes natural, you know. So, you know, really and truly, if you didn't ask me questions, Zeze, I can't continue talking for this one hour on, on, on this podcast. <laughs> you know, I'm telling you, there's somewhere I went. Like I like I can you, you just you know, the more you do something, you know, the better it gets at it. So like thinking yeah. that the way you are on your day one. Is the way you be on yeah. your day, whenever. I think your honesty and candidness as a person outside of Chibundu, the author, is refreshing. Culturally, especially, we have these very strong relationships or even a dependence to want to be of a certain character that fits in with a brand. And being able to navigate that with the idea that, you know, I am human and I am young and I have written this book. And yes, this book does touch on a whole bunch of other things that in my mind, you know, I wanted to have this conversation, but doesn't make me an expert. But moving forward, um, I still want to have other conversations about other topics within my writing. But perhaps now I'm a little bit more comfortable in the fact that that's who I am and how I am in this space. You know, you've been nominated for lots of awards won some I guess your reach is growing book number three has a lot of anticipation in the meantime where does everyone find you so you can find me on social media actually so I'm at chibundu.onuzo on Instagram 
Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, that's sort of where I'm online. But more importantly, what is that? Instagram does not um, does not pay the bills. Please go and buy my books. You can find me in Waterstones. <laughs> don't come and look for me on social media. I don't. I'm not doing anything with your like. <laughs> um, welcome to Lagos and the Spider King Daughter. Yes, those two books. You can find them in the shops. That's the only place you should look for me, to be honest. Please pick Until up a I copy. It's to. anywhere you can get a book, Kindle. Do you have audio versions of the book? Yes, yes, it's on Audible as well. Yeah, Audible. Uh, anywhere you can find a book, basically. I guess that's the benefit of being being published by a publisher. Thank you so much for joining us on this oh, episode. Oh, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed your candid expressions, and you've made me laugh way more than I thought, so... Thank you so much for joining us this week, Jibundu. You're welcome. Oh, I forgot something. So on every episode, or I try when mm-hmm. I don't forget, to ask each of my guests how to say their names properly. You kind of have done that already, but it usually mm-hmm. tends to birth a story of how their names are said incorrectly. <laughs> so how is your name said properly? Um, so my f- first name is Ima Chibundu, which means knowing God is life. I have a Yoruba name because my mom is Yoruba, Oluwadara, which means God has done a wonder. I agree. And Onuzo, or Onuzo Chukukama, which means the way of the Lord is best. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. I won't try and attempt that. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you so much for joining us in this week's episode, Chibundi. Thank you for listening to this episode of Third Culture Africans, the Lifestyle Podcast. We would love to hear from you. So please find us on Facebook or Instagram at Third Culture Africans and leave us a comment. A review goes a long way in getting our show notice. So please leave us one if you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time.